Please be seated. So here we are, 2021, and still having 2020-style interesting days. I mean, really, who would have thought that we would need to stress about an inauguration? Typically, inaugurations, the amount of thought that I give to an inauguration is, oh, was that yesterday? That's, that is how relevant they typically are uh, uh, in my life. And uh, here we are concerned about it. In fact, today represents only a handful of times in which I have been specifically asked to talk about something that was of concern to people in, uh, in the message. Now, I avoid talking about politics uh, deliberately. God has not expressed a preference for a candidate in a really long time. I think Josiah was the last time. It's been a while. He hasn't expressed a preference for any political party or platform or style of government or economic system. He hasn't weighed in on it in, in any way, especially not recently. And so you can be a perfectly fine Christian and have uh, whatever political philosophy you wish. But as I said, today is a little weird, and people are concerned. And it just so happens that our text today is pretty excellent at thinking about and addressing and providing a framework for thinking about that uh, concern. In our text, Paul is writing to an Ephesian congregation that feels a little disconnected. And one of the major important through lines for the book of Ephesians is this idea of unity and where we find it and what we gather around. Finding unity and peace, even in circumstances where it seems like those things are far off. Now, he goes about it in kind of an odd way, because Paul, of course, was not a family man, and in fact encouraged people to uh, not be family men if they could avoid it, right? He never uh, married and advised against it. So it's kind of weird that he spends a full third of the book of Ephesians talking about the nature of family, talking about family life. So why the focus on this particular issue. The Ephesians were going through something a little bit unusual, and in fact, kind of a, a world first for them. You see, they were one of the very earliest congregations to be made up primarily of Gentile believers. They hadn't been raised waiting for a Messiah, feeling the excitement when they realized he had come, realizing what he had won for them. They hadn't been raised with the rituals and traditions of the children of Israel. So they felt separate in a lot of ways from them. And at the same time, they also now felt separate from the ways of the world in which they had been raised. They could no longer look at themselves and say that they were still Gentiles anymore. These thoughts on family provide a framework for thinking about a world that to the Ephesian congregation, it must have looked like they didn't belong in anymore. That seemed more hostile than it had previously. We pick up our reading today in the last chapter of the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, and we'll start reading at verse 1. You can follow along on your bulletins. It reads, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment given with a promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long life on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, admittedly, this word obey that it starts off with kind of jumps out at me in a negative way. Uh, It always bugs me a little bit because whenever you use the word obey, it always has this feeling that it comes with uh, obligation or a, a level of blindness even, right? And obviously, blind obedience has led to a huge number of problems historically. There's, it, there's not a lot of virtue to be found in it. The spin, though, that we get on this word when we look, on it, uh, look at it in Greek is actually really interesting. Maybe not even something that we would really think of as obey, necessarily. The literal translation of the word that's being used here is when you answer the door when someone is knocking. I suppose that's a kind of obedience, right? Somebody came to the door, they knocked, And now, I guess they have transferred some responsibility onto me, right? I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to open up the door. There is a a level of doing something outside of my own will type of obedience. I've never really thought about it as like being made subject to somebody when somebody... I've never shouted at the door when it's not, you don't own me, man, right? And then left it. It's just something that you just, just, just do. Answering the door doesn't feel like an obligation and in fact it kind of is kind of exciting like it's nice I'm happy to obey the the knock at the door because more often than not it's going to be good news it's going to be somebody I want to see it's going to be the delivery of a package from Amazon it's going to be friends who came over to play it's going to be the neighbor kids coming over to take my kids out of the house so that I can get some work done it's usually good and I'm pretty sure that most people don't answer the door full of these feelings of pessimism and obligation. That's the word that's being used for obey here. Paul likens answering a knock at the door to obeying the fourth commandment to honor your father and mother. Talk about a positive take on obedience. It's not drudgery. It's about attentiveness. It's about this kind of automatic, reflexive, joyful following of their lead. He even continues it uh, with this kind of positive part uh, where he echoes the, uh, uh, the little nod that he's got with the word well. The, uh, uh, he's, of course, translating from Hebrew and, and relaying it in Greek, but the Greek word that he's using as well is the same word that you would use to encourage a kid. It was like, attaboy, good job, well done, that's my girl, right? That's the word that you would use uh, when it says that it's going to be uh, well with you. And actually, when we think about it in that light, some of the mysteries of this commandment end up getting uh, cleared up. When I was a kid, the hard, this was one of the hardest parts of the commandments for me to understand. Not the idea that I should honor my father and mother, like that was intuitive to some extent. It was this other part, that you might live a long life on the earth. Well, as a kid, that made no sense to me at all. Was this some sort of like, like if I obey my parents, then... There's this magic spell that lets me live to 99. Like, why is there this bit to it? But now I'm a parent. And now I understand what it's talking about. Because 60% of my time is spent just trying to keep my two children alive. And if they didn't listen to me, that would end 
almost immediately. I've got two children. If I get one of them to survive to adulthood, I will count that as a tremendous success because they are constantly innovating brand new ways to try to kill themselves. It's horrifying to behold if you are a parent. They're like demented, suicidal Looney Tunes characters. I have watched my oldest daughter almost be crushed by a piano and an anvil on separate occasions. I've only ever seen two anvils in my whole life, and one of them almost got her. Everything goes in the mouth. Everything that's sharp is fun. Everything that has an electrical current, they always want to walk into the traffic or off a cliff or into the Pacific Ocean, and you're always grabbing them. Stop, please, wait, Bryn, Madison, trying to hold them back, and you're counting on them to listen to you. Because if they don't, as she goes running off into traffic, all it takes is one lapse where she doesn't listen to me scream, Bryn. And then there's tragedy. It's tough just making it alive as a kid. And if you want to have a long life on the earth, you need to be listening to your parents it's a borderline miracle that kids survive childhood. If you listen as readily as answering a door to your parents' encouragement and hear those times that they say, good job, thank you for listening to me, if you respond to those things, you're going to live. It's kind of an interesting way then for us to take this and consider some of the other relationships that are relevant in the fourth commandment, namely those with our state and with our God. So one aspect is with the government, right? Which is timely because there's a new president being inaugurated today. Obedience in that realm, when we talk about obedience to the state, again, it often feels punishment driven. I'm motivated to drive the speed limit, not because I think that's a reasonable speed for me to drive, but because I might get punished if I don't. I don't want a ticket. But the relationship to authority is one here of automatic attentiveness and a desire for the best. The best for myself, the best for them, and the best for my neighbors. And of course, the most important parent-child relationship of all is the one with our God, responding with the kind of automatic attentiveness to the instructions that he gives in Scripture keeps us alive. We oftentimes ignore this aspect of the commandments. None of the commandments are for God's benefit. He's no better off if we obey or disobey these commandments. All of the commandments were given for our sake. These are common sense things for us. Don't kill people. Don't sleep around. Take a day and meditate on God. Don't believe the worst about somebody. Don't spread lies and falsehoods. All of these benefit us. All of these are things that are keeping us alive. These are God's ways of keeping us from walking out into the traffic or into the Pacific. And in fact, perfect obedience to these rules was the only way that we had to actually live, to actually survive to have a reunion with God, but we couldn't. We stubbornly refused to listen. We stubbornly walk into the dangers that kill us. It's that next part then 
in this text that sheds some more interesting light on it. This, uh, uh, this little phrase, do not provoke your children to wrath. That's actually one word there, parogizio. Uh, you can translate it exasperate in a bunch of different ways, but it's a weird word that we don't have a perfect English equivalent to. It means punishing the offender rather than the offense. So it's kind of like saying, fathers, don't punish the child, don't take it out on the kid as though it's the kid. Punish the offense, not necessarily the offender. Direct your wrath towards the offense and not towards the offender. Well, God demonstrated this kind of love in the most dramatic possible way. First off, it certainly shows you how unconditional love is possible. I love my children no matter how many times they try to off themselves in the road. I love them no matter how many times they disobey. They're my children, and I love them. God takes that so much more to the next level. We were going to die because of our disobedience. And instead, God took his own infinitely obedient son and made him a sacrifice for us, being brought up in the instruction and training of the Lord. He did his father's endlessly perfect will, endlessly perfectly. Even when that will didn't align with his own wishes, he asked for that cup to pass from him. Even then, he followed his, his father's instructions, followed his father's love, even when it took him up on a cross where he dumped all the punishment that our wrong actions deserve. Talk about separating the offense from the offender. He looked at me. He looked at us. And instead of seeing us for what we've done, saw us as his children. And when he poured out his wrath for sin, it wasn't on the offenders. It was on the offense which he laid on Jesus. These verses point to that relationship in the family of God. He loves the sinners because he doesn't define them by their sin. He defines them by the relationship that he has with them. I go to heaven in spite of who I am and what I am and what I believe, and what I've done, and what labels I've accepted or attempted to reject in this world, because God assesses me by my relationship with him as a child, one by Jesus. So what about then this last application of the fourth commandment, our relationship with authority? Well, at a time where so much anger and rancor has been spread as a consequence of the nature of our relationships with the state, it doesn't hurt to bear in the front of our minds how God sees us. Not as a label, not as any earthly affiliation, not even as a collection of actions for which he has grievances. Offensives can and should be called out. Wrongs can and should be identified and righted. And lies should be called out and corrected. And in all of that, we can still look at one another and see them with the eyes that God gave us to see them with. To see them as beloved children of God apart from any other consideration as redeemed, 
and beloved, to love others for that and nothing else, just as God loves you. Amen. Please rise. Let's join our hearts in prayer for our nation. Gracious Heavenly Father, it was in your mercy that you provided us with earthly leaders and instructed us to pray for all who are in authority. We ask your blessing today on our president and vice president as they begin their work of serving our nation. Grant them wisdom to fulfill their duties, uphold the laws of our land, and protect the people of our nation. As Christians, in the world but not of it, Give us the wisdom to follow in your ways, to dispel anger, remove doubt, bind wounds, and heal divisions. We pray that in every time of difficulty, you would give us opportunity to direct our neighbors to your kingdom of perfection, won by your son, guaranteed by his blood, given by faith. Let all be done according to your will, that your church may flourish in freedom as your word is proclaimed for the salvation of many. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. As children of God, let's sing now with simple faith the children's hymn, Jesus Loves Me.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you. Amen.